Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Dick Pound. He's been a member of the International Olympic Committee for more than 40 years. He was also the founding president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, serving on its foundation board through 2020. These days, he's a central character in the chaos surrounding the Tokyo Olympics. Look, I'm no sports ball expert, but even I know that Tokyo 2020 has been a doozy. For one thing, it's now Tokyo 2021, thanks to the pandemic. And with the Delta variant in play, there's a debate amongst athletes, medical experts, and fans about whether the games should take place at all. Finally, there have been a series of high-profile controversies related to doping rules involving athletes like Shakiri Richardson that have caused social media uproar. In light of this chaos, I wanted to understand the decision to forge ahead with Tokyo, and I wanted to dig into how someone like Dick Pound looks at the shifting balance of power between athletes, public opinion, and gatekeepers like the IOC. Dick Pound, welcome to Sway. Thanks. Nice to be with you. So I wanted to start by breaking down this decision to go forward in the Tokyo Olympics. In February 2020, you told Associated Press that it was more likely the games would be canceled rather than postponed. Did you want to cancel or was that a prediction? No, at the time, it it looked like the organizers in the IOC were in one of these school picnic things with a three-legged race, marching resolutely towards this precipice. And, you know, you have to say, look, it's not going to happen in 2020. And in the old system, it was kind of binary. Uh, you either went ahead or you canceled. But the Tokyo organizers were so good that they said, look, maybe there's another alternative, which is to postpone. And we think we can hold this whole bowl of jello together for a year, but no longer than a year. And we said, well, listen, that's certainly preferable to, to canceling. So let's explore that option. And that, that's where we've been ever since. Bowls of jello and also three-legged races over a cliff. That's kind of interesting metaphors to use. Um, when you were thinking about it, why not just cancel and move on? I mean, you've got, if nothing else, you've got thousands and thousands of athletes from 206 countries who've been training for this you know, event for years and years and years. And you know, we've never faced a postponement before. We faced cancellations due to wars on three occasions. And the thought was that, you know, within a year, we would know an awful lot more about COVID than we did in February or early March of 2020, which is true. Why is it important to keep the Olympics in play? I think it's important, A, for the athletes, B, for learning how to respond to game changers like a COVID. I mean, there hasn't been something on this scale for a century and nobody in living memory can remember the, you know, the Spanish flu, as it was called. And uh, frankly, the world at large needs some good news at this point. Right. The motivation of uh, we need the Olympics. It's good for 
global mood, I suppose. Um, and then there is the survival of the Olympics from a financial point of view. It would have been easy to cancel if you were looking at this from a, a financial perspective only. Any stakeholder in something as complex and as time sensitive as, as the Olympics goes through a risk assessment. Right. And you insure against those risks. It would have been easy for the IOC to say, okay, we're out of here. The games are canceled. Speak to your insurers. Get all the, all the stuff that you've uh, insured financially in sort of complication-wise. That would have been the easy solution. Well, there's potentially $4 billion in broadcast rights involved. Yeah. I'm not in the insurance business with the IOC, but I mean, those are obvious risks against which you can insure yourself. Um, so the IOC has a huge economic motive going forward. The committee makes over 90% of its income from sponsorships and broadcasting rights. Could the Olympics survive 2022, 2024 if Tokyo Games were canceled? Yes. As we become bigger and more expert and more alert to the number of things that can go wrong, we've been building up for a number of years a war chest. So we, we can survive for sure. And uh, the amount of money that we provide to the international sports federations and the National Olympic Committees is there. It's a hit. It's a body blow, but it's not a knockout blow by any means. In May, you said the Olympics would proceed, quote, barring Armageddon. It's not the end of the world, but we do have a Delta variant, slow vaccine uptake globally and in Japan specifically, and lockdowns in certain cities, including Tokyo. Does none of it give you pause? So... I mean, we're on, on a daily or weekly basis in touch with the, the public health authorities and the WHO just to, to keep a, a handle on this and say, here's what we're doing. Here's what the Japanese are planning to do. Does this amount to an appreciable increase in the risk, A, to athletes and B, to the Japanese public at large? Right. Now, in May, a poll found 83% of Japanese citizens do not want their country to host the Olympics and Paralympics. Tokyo Medical Workers published a letter calling for the Games to be canceled. Do you consider these views? Well, of course. Of course. But, but I mean, you, you, you look uh, at the views and you respect the views. Uh, but there are, if I may say, more informed views than the, the public at large. And what tends to happen in, in these things is once the games start, that becomes the story. Okay. So moving ahead with the games, why not implement a vaccination requirement for athletes who are competing? Yeah, it, it, it sounds like it's a, a you know, a, a, an easy fix. It's not. I mean, cer certainly for the IOC, it's not. I mean, we're not a public authority. We're a private organization. We can encourage and we've done everything we can. Uh, the only ones who, who could uh, institute something of that nature might be the Japanese who say, if you don't have the double vaccination, you're not allowed to come to Japan. Uh, and they haven't done that. This is a much bigger bubble than some of the other sports sporting events that have gone on. There's many more athletes. There's many more of everything, pretty much. And obviously, there's not going to be spectators and family and things like that. What is the biggest worry you have? Uh, today? Yeah. Would be that there is some huge outbreak of a sort that hasn't been anticipated and planned for. I mean, the, the bubbles are all there. I mean, you know, w when I get there on Sunday afternoon, I'm going to be tested. And if I'm fine, I'm going to be put into a, a bus or a car that will take me directly to the hotel. And I, I'm going to be there um, in sort of semi-isolation in the hotel. And, and the same with the athletes. They'll go, you know, by buses from the Olympic Village to the practice and, and competition area. It's all designed to limit 
any interaction between people who are not in the bubble and the people who are in it. So what happens if there's a COVID outbreak at these games? What is What are the plans for what happens if that's the case? Well, the plans are, are for basically for practically daily testing. And a- any sort of anomalous results would result in, in further isolation. Uh, we've got, you know, sort of, I don't know what you call them, uh, emergency units in the village that where anybody who tests positive or anomalously uh, would go into sequestration of a sort in the village until that was resolved. Who is accountable if it does happen like this, if there's a larger outbreak, if there's, you know, more than just a several, a handful of cases, this is a lot of people and a quantum level, it's a larger bubble than ever before. It's, well, it's, uh, I think the answer is, is what we've done all along is, is that we're very much in lockstep with the Japanese authorities and the organizing committee and public health authorities getting the best information we can on the symptoms and treatment and the contagion aspect. And we're relying on that information to make our decisions. And the information we have is that this is what we're planning to do is feasible. Who's accountable, though? Who? Where, where do you imagine people will hold account? Is it the Japanese government? Is it the IOC? Is it Dick Pound? Well, you know, all, all kinds of uh, people love to have more than uh, ten fingers to point uh, blame and so forth, but I mean, I think the ultimate responsibility would be the Japanese authorities to say, "Listen, it's just on the basis of what we know, it's it's too dangerous to proceed." That's the hypothetical. What they have done is taken all of that advice and say, "No, we can proceed, and we plan to proceed." Okay, so one safeguard that will be in place is the absence of crowds. International spectators were banned in March. Uh, earlier this month, Tokyo organizers said that even Japanese spectators won't be allowed in the stands. Talk to me about games without the roar of the crowd. It's one of the important parts of it, I suspect. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I think spectators are nice to have. Yeah, but they're not must-haves. Really? And oh, for sure. You know, Ninety-nine point five percent or more of the people who experience the Tokyo Games will do so via television or some other electronic platform. They don't care <laughs> whether there are a, a few thousand in in uh, various stadia uh, cheering on the athletes. I mean, it's probably more fun uh, to have that you know a crowd reaction. But in certain sports, it may be a distraction as much as a an advantage. And I mean, I. I remember when I was a swimmer. Mm-hmm. You were, let me just say you swam at the 1960 Olympics in Rome. Uh, just I just did. for people to know, that was so long ago we didn't even have water. Yeah, and I sound no, like a, a no grandparent, water. but yeah, but you know you're focused on your competition, not the crowd. So you didn't like it, it, you didn't mixed. like the crowds. No, I mean I I was focused on my lane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen the the Chariots of Fire movie, there's a, a wonderful scene you know before the hundred meters where everything is sort of blurry except for the lane. That, that's the kind of focus that they have. Afterwards, when you're finished and, and people are there and cheering, well, you know, that's nice. But What sports do better without crowds? Well, I, I think anything that requires real concentration and, you know, take, take an easy one, archery. You got people whooping and yelling around when you're trying to hit a bullseye that's 70 meters away with it. You know, I mean, you, you don't want to be distracted by um, uh, crowds. Right. I didn't realize there was a lot of whooping at archery competitions, but... Um, well, now it's, they've changed the format so that it's like 
gunfight at the OK Corral. Yeah, I think that's the Hunger Games. I think that's a movie. Anyway, so it's not just victory celebrations, though. There's money involved, too. How much revenue would be lost with empty seats and stadiums? I, the figure I saw was $800 million at one point. I've seen that figure, and 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 that's a, that. It was a cost that the organizers were quite prepared to assume. So, when you think about that, where do you imagine it going? Will broadcast rights be the thing that's the most important part of the equation, financially and from a fan perspective? Certainly, the, the broadcast rights are, are, from our perspective, a, a very real source of revenue. As, as our our sponsorship, you know, we we spend a lot of time and effort trying to make sure that somebody who's a sponsor understands what it is buying into. Yeah. So speaking of money, uh, Tokyo organizers originally said it would cost $7.5 billion to host the games. The price tag is now $15.4 billion, making the most expensive summer games in history. Only $2.8 billion of that is delay cost due to COVID. So most of it is cost overruns, which is pretty typical in any Olympic year, I think. Hosting is seen as a prized jewel is that a worry from your point that it's become less than a prize jewel, maybe a bag of coal? You can stage the Olympic Games without any impact on the tax base of your host country. What happens is, is that the countries are looking to the future uh, or, or cities, as, as the case may be, and say, you know, where do we want to be in, in 20 or 30 years in terms of infrastructure? And that's one of the great things about the Olympics is, is that there's a starting date. I mean, you know, Barcelona went from being kind of a sleepy Mediterranean town uh, to a real commercial and, and uh, business center. It, it got new roads. It got a whole bunch of infrastructure things that transformed the country. It even, you know, Athens gets a bad rap for 2004. But if you go to a, Athens and ask people, what, were the Olympics worthwhile? So, oh, yeah, no, no, we've got this, an LRT, we've got an airport, we've got new roads and so what on. What would you say to Rio? Barcelona certainly was a success. Rio, right. not so much. Yeah. I, well, I have to say I was never enthusiastic about Rio other than the idea of being in, in South America. Why was that? Oh, just because you know, there's a reason the games had never been in South America before. And that's because they, they simply were not capable of the uh, demanding organization that the, these projects require. And so the corruption and the inaptitude of the, uh, the people in place um, just destroyed that. And it, it was every day during the games, even though it looked fantastic on television, they teetered on the brink of catastrophic failure. And it didn't get any better. So the games and host governments often get wound up in the controversy of the moment, global controversies, not just the, the pandemic aside. In Berlin, 1936, the topic was black athletes competing in Nazi Germany. In Moscow, 1980, it was the Cold War boycott. I'm sure I'm missing a few. There's always some. Talk a little bit about why the Olympics get so easily caught up in social issues. Why do you think the Olympics get so easily caught up in this? Well, because they've been so successful and, and it becomes so universal. It's, 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 you know, the largest peaceful gathering on the face of the planet these days. And, and it's a tempting target for um, people to, uh, to shoot at. And uh, what you have to do, and, you know, we've had all kinds of uh, political controversy the, o over the years. And they say you have to hold on to your line. Look, we think that sport can improve the world. And, you know, when you think of athletes from 206 countries competing together in, in, in Tokyo, sorry, 205, I guess North Korea has decided not to come, but that's an example of what can be uh, 
accomplished. You can be together, you can compete, uh, respecting you know the rules of the competition, respecting your opponents, and it doesn't matter what your color or your religion or your political objectives can be. They, you know, a hundred meters is as long for you as it is for me. Sure, but I mean, you could say you know it's easy to shoot at them. It's also it's good to use it as a platform. I mean, let me just make a point of. Uh, there's pressure from social media and celebrities about the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, given human rights abuses in China, especially the Uyghurs. Um, people say the IOC is helping clean up China's authoritarian image. This is not something new for not just the Olympics. A lot of, uh, you know, Apple has endured this kind of accusations. What's your response to that? Well, the response to, to if, if, if you're using Beijing as an example, is look, what you are concerned with is the conduct of the Chinese government. These are all government decisions. Uh, they're not sport decisions. And, and we didn't give Beijing the, the games because uh, we, you know, we're admirers of any particular policy. We gave it because we can rely on them to, to organize the games well. But so say if, if, if governments want to send messages to the Chinese government, there are ways that they can do it. Uh, this is a government problem. You, you can't say, well, all else has failed or, or we're not willing to do anything else. What we should do is prevent our athletes from participating in the Olympic Games. And it's, it's, everybody knows it's ineffective. You know, the, the Moscow boycott was a complete, it did nothing to produce conduct change on the part of the Soviet Union of the day. Nothing. It didn't have any impact from your perspective. Zero impact. All you did, all you did, was ruin the lives of your own citizens by boycotting. What are people who object supposed to do then? Uh, say, to, in this case, the Uyghurs. Obviously, a lot has changed when Beijing last hosted in two thousand and eight. What is your prediction of how this will play out? The protest side of things. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, what we've done is, is try to make it clear to athletes and some of the people surrounding the athletes that they are not precluded from expressing opinions. There is, however, a time and a place. The field of play is not, uh, you know, the time to throw a bucket of paint over somebody from another country because you don't agree with their, their policy. And the same is true of the, the medal ceremonies. But you've got press conferences, you've got all kinds of opportunities to express your opinion. Uh, and you say, you're free to do that. But part of the deal is that we're not going to ruin the sports events uh, at the Games. Earlier this month, the IOC announced that athletes could express their views in the field of play before the competition begins or when they're introduced by an announcer, and it has to be in line with the Olympic Charter. Will this right to protest be protected in the Beijing Olympics? Well, I, I think, I mean, subject to applicable law and so on, yes. The, the, you know, the, it, it, the Olympics are kind of a little oasis. You know, you're actually, you should think about why you're there. You're not, you're not there to protest. You haven't trained for 12 years or 10 years so that you can protest in front of uh, some people who may not even know what you're protesting about. Um, but that said, uh, you are entitled to your opinion and to, and to the expression of it. And Are you worried about a reaction from the Chinese government? They have been known to do that. Um, I, th I think, you know, if, if I were the chef de mission of, of the Canadian team, I'd say, look, you're, you're entitled to your views. You're entitled to express them. You're not at home right now. You're in a foreign country with has, which has different rules, different laws, different culture. Be sensitive to that. 
yeah, I think it'll be an interesting situation with the Chinese, especially given the aggression in Hong Kong and everywhere else. Yeah. Um, there will be a face-off. You, are you expecting one between one, some athlete and the Chinese government? Well, it, 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 <laughs> it depends how reckless the athlete may be. You can certainly draw attention to yourself in a positive way or a negative way, and that's going to be your choice. But as long as you understand that there are consequences, or there may be consequences, um, go ahead. All right. So one of the things I wanted to finish up here, and then I want to talk about doping uh, issues. Um, a lot of social media pressure comes from celebrities who have bigger and more direct reach because of technology now. When a star athlete with millions of followers like Megan Rapino or Naomi Osaka, both of whom will be at the Olympics, call out gatekeepers like the IOC or any of these agencies, what's the impact now? Uh, not an awful lot, frankly. I mean, I mean, you know, WADA is, is an international agency that has been formed by all of the stakeholders with a view to controlling and, and, and can't eradicating the use of performance-enhancing substances and methods. That's, that's its uh, raison d'etre. And, and uh, nobody actually quarrels with that. I'm going to get to that in a second, but let me ask, when you think about the power of these athletes now, is that something you all think about? You say, no, it's not, that they have, the, that they, they have these global platforms now with direct reach to fans and direct reach of influence. Nobody objects to that. And, and, and I must say, there's been a lot of change in recent years of, of, you know, when I was an athlete, my job was to do what I was told by the, the sports officials and just keep quiet. Uh, and now we, we seek out athlete involvement in the IOC. I mean, so it's a really a kind of a, a triumvirate of views that we're looking for and encouraging. You're welcome their Twitter power, for example. I, well, that's that's something beyond me. I mean, okay. I, I now understand the basic principles of the telegraph. But <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. I'm yeah, glad but, because but, we've moved but, on. But, but social media is is with us, and, yeah. and we 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 live with it. We we embrace it. Yeah, the kids love it, Dick. Just so you know, just the internets. They love the internets. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Dick Pound after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsnap. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. 
frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So you just retired from the foundation board of the, we were talking WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency. You actually were the founding president of that organization when there were major doping uh, scandals in cycling and other uh, areas. How concerned are you about doping in advance of Tokyo? Uh, it's the same level of concern in, in the sense that uh, there will be people, uh, you know, at the opening ceremonies who, despite swearing they'll follow the rules, will not. Uh, they don't care. And, and so you've got to be uh, alert to that. We're certainly conscious that there was probably less testing possible during the pandemic because of restrictions on travel, particularly international travel. So there may have been an opportunity for uh, more doping than we would have liked. On the other hand, one of the things we've done over the last few years is is extend the the period during which we can charge a doping offense from sort of like on the on the day to 10 years you you may get out of town with your medal but we may come back uh two three five oh. ten years later and say wait a minute you were cheating give it back there's that the, the other thing is our investigative capacity has increased uh, quite a lot and one of the things about doping is that somebody else knows none of the sophisticated stuff is done solely by the athletes. Somebody else knows. And circumstances may change. Uh, and maybe they don't like you anymore. So there's a risk out there that for me is it is or should be a significant deterrent. To doing it. When I say, are you worried? What I mean is, are you expecting to have to take back a lot of these medals? And of course, for the athletes who competed clean, who now get the medal later, they didn't get to celebrate or have the endorsements at the time. Is there anything right now that you can do in advance of the Olympics to, to minimize the situation? Oh, I mean, basically, it's, it's through trying to educate people that not only is, is this kind of cheating dangerous, you know, if I understand that you're taking five nanograms of whatever it is, and I say, well, I'm just leveling the playing field, that's wrong. I'm not trying to level the playing field. I don't want to be the same as you. I'm going to take 10 nanograms and you find out I'm taking 10, you're, you're going to go to, and you can escalate these things to the, to the point where they become toxic or, or even lethal. So there's a, there's a physical uh, and psychological danger to that. Uh, and the ethical component is, look, we all agreed. These are the prohibited substances. We don't use them. That's, that's our deal. And, and if you break that deal, I mean, I'm not one who said you should go to jail for that, uh, but I said, I just don't want to play with you anymore. Right, right. So so why, why don't you take a time out for four years, eight years, whatever, or forever? Speaking of banned substances that are problematic for you all to deal with right now, there's a global outcry over the decision to suspend Shakiri Richardson, as we talked about earlier. The runner last set the internet on fire when she won the 100 meters of the U.S. Olympic trials in 10.86 seconds. Uh, I could 
barely run 10 meters in that time, by the way. Um, Richardson tested positive after those uh, trials for marijuana. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency slapped her with a one-month suspension to be uh, compliant with WADA's rulebook. So now she'll miss out on the Olympics. Was banning Richardson a good call from in your estimation? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it, 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 marijuana is on the list. And, and I mean, even your president said, look, those are the rules. And, you know, the question is, should we be having another look at the rule? It, it's kind of ironic, but but one of the countries that was the most firm and adamant about having marijuana on the list was the United States of America, right right from the beginning. It was regarded, by, you know, by the ONDCP as it's the entry-level drug from which all the other bad things uh, happen. So uh, now we've got uh, the United States or, or parts of the United States uh, saying, you know, we need to have another look at it. Right. And I'm quite prepared to do that. If it turns out that it is not performance enhancing, then perhaps it can be taken off the list. Or what I, what I personally would prefer is to say, look, it's really a substance of abuse rather than a performance enhancer. Let's have it on the list. But the, but the, the range of penalty in, in the case of a positive test can go from, uh, you know, a warning or, or a rebuke or something to a suspension, depending on these circumstances. But it's also legal in many places. So why would you even have to be rebuked for it? I mean, it's like cigarettes or liquor or anything else. Well, it, you know, it, in, in some countries, yes. In other countries, you can be in jail for quite a long time. And jails in the United States are filled with people for marijuana. So it's, uh, it's not an easy call. Now, Richardson responded with an apology and an explanation been using marijuana to help cope with the recent uh, loss of her birth mother. How did that uh, impact you when you were thinking of, even though this is a good call? It's, you know, some, sometimes stuff happens and, uh, you know, you're trying to have a, a, a one-size-fits-all is, in cases of this nature, it's not, it's not like using anabolic steroids or something like that. This, this, there's more nuance to this, and, and I think that it, it would be a useful exercise to look at that rule, and not so much whether marijuana stays on the list, as what, are the, what is the range of sanctions? Is it a reprimand? Is it a warning? Or, or do the circumstances indicate that... Um, a suspension should be uh, should be applied. All right. Well, if you had been able in this case, and I know you don't like I'm guessing you don't like hypotheticals. What would you have put in place? Would it be a rebuke or would it be? Well, uh, if I could turn the clock back, mm-hmm. and if I were king for a day, I would have a range. I'd keep it on the list, but I'd have a range of sanctions that include, at the lower end, no suspension. And at the higher end, a suspension. But let's let's say you'd been warned three or four times about marijuana, and you, and you still did it, and went into competition. At, at some point, you say, "Hey, sorry, this, we clearly have not got your attention by uh, a reprimand or a warning. Now, do we have your attention that you're going to have to sit out for six months or whatever it may be?" And so, I think that's the answer and, until there's really a consensus on whether or not it is a performance-enhancing substance. So when, when we think about how these rules should, I, I know you're retired, but when you see these rules evolve over time, for example, we were speaking about weed, but now drugs like LSD, uh, psilocybin, MDMA are rising in popularity. There's research suggesting these drugs help people deal with depression, anxiety, PTSD. What should happen here with WADA? 
Well, I, I think the list committee every year should be looking at these things and say, all right, what what is the literature out there? What what is what is the empirical uh, evidence in, in terms of why people are using these things? Is there an impact on performance? Those are questions that the experts can analyze. And what we do every year is our, our, our list committee proposes uh, any amendments. That's disseminated to a, a huge audience of, of scientific and sports and other government officials and so forth, whose comments are then collected uh, within a, a few months. And a final recommendation is made prior to September 30th of each year as to what will be on the list starting January 1st the next year. That's how you evolve a regulation in the context of what we're concerned with, which is, which is sport. Should you all be thinking about these issues around these athletes, mental health, and obviously physical is where we focus with these athletes constantly, with their physical performance, whether they can beat the records, we need to think about anti-doping. Do we think enough about mental health issues around athletes? Um, probably not, although uh, the phenomenon of, of the sport psychologist is increasingly important. And, and yes, it's an issue, but you have to you know, go back a little bit and say it's the athletes themselves who put themselves in the, the situation of stress, of competition, and, and um, doing your best to be successful. That's their call. Right. Well, at the same time, Naomi Osaka has been talking about mental health since the French Open, where she decided to skip press conferences and she ended up withdrawing from the tournament. When you read all about that, what, what were your thoughts? Well, I thought, certainly in tennis, that I've seen that before. Agents, managers, parents, uh, and others put too much pressure on kids that are too young to deal with it. There's a responsibility there for a, not ruining the life of an athlete and at the same time, helping them become the best they can be. Okay, I have two more questions about where things are going. Speaking of change, Olympics seem to be constantly adding new sports this year. There are six new ones, including skateboarding. What sports do you think will be added in 2024? I know that Paris is very uh, enthusiastic about having sports that are sort of available without going into stadia and, and so on. So you get the three-on-three basketball and those kinds of events, I think, are designed to... Uh, a, keep expenses down, be more accessible to the public at large, and C, be uh, more attractive to the younger generation. So is there anything you would like to see added? Uh, no, not in particular. I, I'm, not in particular. You know, I, I, I like some of the classic uh, sports, but I mean, track and field is going to have to reinvent itself. Why is that? Well, because there's, there's too much going on at, at any given time, and if you don't know the sport well enough, you're not sure exactly what you're watching. Sailing had to reinvent itself. You know, no more four master boats. You got lasers and, and board sailing. Uh, I mean, there are lots of ways in which you're going to have to uh, reinvent your sport. What about swimming? Your sport? Swimming? Well, it's, uh, it seems to work. I think what happened is that the program has exploded. And, and there, there are now so many events that are really so similar that you get the the Mark Spitzes, and you get the Michael Phelps who, who win six, seven, eight medals in a competition. I don't know whether that's particularly healthy uh, or not. Do you think it has to be jazzed up, though? I mean, I, I would say, like, say, put sharks in the in the pool, and then you have to swim faster. <laughs> no? Yes? Oh, that would certainly work on the mental health, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
fight or flight or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I just only want the Olympics with just Simone Biles, just so you know. I just want her. I just want all Simone Biles all the time, and I'm sure I could do that via the internet. I will be watching her in gymnastics, etc. Well, that's, that's worth watching for sure. It is indeed. Anyway, Dick, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Jordan Reed. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lint, and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with your very own medal ceremony, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.